smashy sound effect from the stock library. I hope you like that. Uh, welcome to episode two of Performer on Record, the official podcast for Performer Magazine. Uh, I am your host, Ben. I am the editor of the magazine and the website. Uh, so welcome. If you haven't checked out episode one yet, uh, head to whatever podcast uh, service of choice you prefer, hopefully the one you're listening to now, and uh, give that a listen and smash the like button. I don't know if you smash anything on a podcast. That's more of a YouTube thing, but why not? Smash it anyway. Uh, smash the subscribe button while you're at it. Just all the buttons. If you see a button, go smash. Pretend you're Hulk, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, if you're not perf- familiar with Performer, uh, we are a magazine that's been around for about 30 years now. Uh, we're an industry trade magazine for musicians. Uh, we cater to and focus on the independent music community artists that are writing, producing, recording, and uh, performing their own original music in in better times, hopefully touring behind that music. Uh, I know things are kind of crazy right now, so if you do have the chance to perform in any capacity, uh, whether that's live streaming or socially distanced parking lot shows or what have you, uh, we we applaud that because I know it's, it's tough, if not impossible, for a lot of folks right now. But that's who we are. If you haven't checked us out, online or in print head over to performermag.com you can get a sense of the types of stuff we cover from music business to gear reviews to artist profiles and new music coverage uh check out the print magazine if you have a chance if you're in a major metro area uh it is free so just grab it keep it on hand it's got some useful info on it uh band stuff uh if you are uh, a working artist today Coming up in this episode, uh, we have a really cool interview uh, with Dirty Streets, which is a really great band down from uh, Memphis. And last month, they were our featured artist of the month. Uh, We do an artist of the month uh, program every month, uh, courtesy of Elixir Strings. We pick a new band, we ship them off uh, some really good strings to check out, and they do some video content for our YouTube channel, which I guess segues nicely into saying, go check out our YouTube channel, where you can actually smash buttons and do all that stuff till your heart's content. After that, we'll take a quick break and we'll launch into another interview uh, with, I guess, another artist from down south, uh, Guitar Gabby, who's going to be featured in our upcoming print issue for August, September. Uh, we talked to her recently about all sorts of things, what's going on in the world, what's going on with her. She's a super cool shredder down from Atlanta. Um, she's got a law degree. She's doing a lot of work for women in music down there. So give that a listen to and uh then we'll we'll wrap things up so that's what's on tap for episode two stay tuned and before we go any further uh we do need to send a big shout out to our premier podcast sponsor elixir strings um this podcast wouldn't be possible without them uh we only use elixir strings here at performer in the office um primarily because their protective coating just keeps our guitar strings full of life better than any other brand we've ever tried and we've tried them all over the past few decades so when we have to review like stomp boxes and amplifiers and recording gear each month for the mag and the website we don't want anything distracting us from that job Um, especially the hassle and expense of swapping out strings and and changing over uh, bass strings especially is a pain Um, so we know you don't want that getting in the way of of making music either so Say goodbye to corrosion and dirt, sweat, and oil buildup with Elixir Strings. That's my copy, not theirs. <laughs> Their proprietary featherweight coating uh, acts as a really great barrier against tone-killing buildup, trust me. Uh, so it just allows you to get to your music and, and not have to fight 
you know, with cleaning strings or swapping strings all the time. It, it's it's really well worth it. And we appreciate Elixir Strings support, um, you know, through our website and our, and our magazine and now the podcast as well. They're really great partners. We can't recommend them highly enough. And for more info, head to elixirstrings.com, find the string that's right for you, and check out our YouTube channel, like I mentioned earlier, where we have a lot of really cool demos uh, from real world players just like you. So now, without further ado, let's get into our interview with The Dirty Streets. So um, what we've been doing is we've been kind of chatting with some of our past uh, Elixir Strings Artists of the Month. And we're here with Justin Tolan from the band uh, The Dirty Streets, uh, who I believe have a record coming out which may or may not have had its release date uh derailed by the current COVID-19 pandemic Justin maybe you can jump in let us know about the new record when that's uh set to be released and uh anything we should know uh about the new tracks yeah it's uh coming out July 31st on Alive Natural Sound Records and it was postponed a little bit um due to everything that's going down but I'm happy that's coming out it's got a lot of songs on it that we have recorded previously, but in a different setting and more of a studio setting. And this one was recorded in a totally different way. It was recorded live at Diddy TV Studios in Memphis. Okay, cool. And and so it's, it's and it has two covers on it as well, which is something we don't usually do. But no, we actually premiered um, one of those tracks. Uh, what was the other cover that you guys did for the new record? The other cover we did was Tell the Truth is the, the one that we did by Otis Redding and was actually written by Joe South. Oh, okay, cool. So both both Joe South songs on the new record. Yes, yeah. They were both written by Joe South, which was kind of a, a deep... I did a deep dive on Joe South <laughs> and got really into his stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a really great place uh, if our listeners haven't taken that deep dive themselves, uh, you know, hit up wikipedia i'm sure there's lots of links that branch off there and lots of sound samples to listen to um from his catalog uh and if you have a chance obviously pick up the new dirty streets record when that comes out uh at the end of july um now maybe you can take us back a little bit and tell us kind of how the band got started how you got involved with the group and kind of what led you up to the new record if you don't mind yeah uh we started originally back in 2008 was this original lineup but previously before that Thomas the bass player and I had met each other at a party at my house sometime around 2007 and I remember that Thomas had said hey uh, I I'm looking to start a new band I would really like to start a band with somebody doing something sort of blues rock oriented and at the time I was really trying to find somebody to do that but it was proving impossible and I told him oh well I already got all these demos that I've been working on and I haven't showed them to anybody maybe you should listen to them so we went in my room and like listened to the demos and he was really excited about it and so that just started the friendship of me and Thomas and the concept of the band really we had nothing going on we didn't have a drummer so it's kind of impossible without a drummer <laughs> we spent the next year or so playing with different drummers and they were drummers that were all in other bands and or just didn't want to play the music and I, I think we played with 
maybe five drummers total in the span of a year. And we were just kind of at the end of our ropes because the last drummer we had ended up getting arrested and not coming to practice and uh, had a bunch of legal trouble. So we were just like, what are we going to do? And he said, well, there's this guy down the street who I hear playing drums every day when I'm at my mom's house. And uh, I hear the drums coming out the window in the second floor. And he sounds like he's really good. And in my mind, I'm like, what are the chances of this guy actually being A, a good drummer, be interested in the music whatsoever, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I thought it was a long shot, but I was like, you know what? I don't know. You should just go ask him. Maybe we should at least talk to him because it kept happening. We would go by and hear him playing drums out the window, you know? <laughs> so finally, Thomas got up enough courage to go up and knock on the door and say, hey, I hear drums coming out the window. Can you tell me who's playing? And Andrew came downstairs, uh, who's our current drummer now, and he was like, yeah, that's me playing drums, and I just moved here from out of town. So we got lucky because he wasn't in a band yet because he had just moved here. <laughs> well, that's one way <laughs> and, to get a drummer. You just walk around town and keep your ears <laughs> open, I guess. Yeah, just knock on doors and <laughs> hope they can play. And he's been in the band ever since, and that was sort of the solid thing, the solid lineup of the band, which was happened around 2008. And, and that's how, when we started. How long did it take you guys to get signed to do the first record? It took another year and a half or so, really, of just playing around to even find our sound. I feel like that's the biggest thing, you know, uh, and build a chemistry enough to make a record. Yeah. And by the time, you know, I guess it was, I think that record was released at the end of 2009, the first record that we did independently. And yeah, that came out and then it was just sort of, it's been sort of the same rhythm the whole time, you know, I think since then we've released, this will be record number six, I think, mm-hmm. the one that's coming out in June, so. And you guys are on a live natural sound. Um, for those folks who don't know, um, it's, a, it's a really great label that's put out kind of, I don't want to pigeonhole bands, but kind of like a a rootsy type of rock and roll. Um, I know Buffalo Killers have put out records on the label. Maybe you can talk about how you got involved with uh, Alive and maybe kind of what your sound um, is like for those who haven't heard it yet. Well, I've been a fan of the label for years. I think when we first started the band and Thomas and I first started hanging out and talking about music, yeah, we had both mutually found the label around the same time. And there were bands like Radio Moscow and Buffalo Killers yeah. and the Black Keys put out their first yeah. record on yeah, Alive yeah. and we were just blown away by the quality of music on the on the roster and it was all just American blues rock or American rock and roll music. There was nothing uh, really deep about most of the stuff and I, I loved it. I thought it was just great quality you know, music that felt real and sincere to me. Yeah. And that seemed to be the only, like, undercurrent of the whole label was just sincerity. And even in the name, you know, Alive Natural Sound, it, it seemed to be uh, the, the name of the game. So years went by, and around 2011 or 12, when our second record came out, we had played with Lee Baines and the Glory Fires, who had released a record. Yep, Lee, Lee's actually um, 
he was on our cover ooh, a couple years back actually with the glorifiers yeah yeah oh cool okay yeah he's a great guy great friend of mine now but uh when i met him we just played together i think we played together twice and the second time he was like man you should really uh talk to patrick from our label about you know being on alive and so that that was kind of just a passing conversation and then uh, about a year later, we toured with Radio Moscow. Yeah. And after that tour, uh, I, I got a call from, you know, Patrick at the label, and we struck up, a, struck up a conversation, and it was really striking to me just how deep the taste of the label went and, the, the, and how much he cared about music, and it was kind of just a great relationship from there on out. We've done, this will be the third record we've released with them. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I it just as a personal aside, uh, I'm a huge fan of the label. They they've sent us music for years. Uh, like you said, Radio Moscow, Buffalo Killers. Um, we've got some John the Conqueror records here. We've got a live vinyl that they put out from the uh, Deep Blues Fest a couple years back. So anybody who hasn't checked out the other bands on the roster, um, definitely recommend you do that uh, while you're giving the Dirty Streets a listen too. What I'd love to do is maybe learn a little bit about the band's creative process. Um, I don't know if this record has differed um, from any of your previous works and how you kind of approach the studio, but maybe you can walk us through what that process looks like, kind of from the songwriting portion all the way up to finishing a recorded track. Usually, since the very beginning, it's been the same, and kind of how the band started. Like I said, I had demos, and Mm -hmm. I showed them to... Thomas and he was into it. That's usually just the the beginning of the song, which is me coming up with ideas and sort of putting them down in a super super raw form. That's almost uh, not discernible, to be honest. Most of the time, <laughs> it's usually just a a couple of riffs, maybe you know me howling at, into a microphone for a second, and uh, I, then I take that to Thomas and Andrew, and as a band, we digest whatever I have and turn it into a song. And so it's a real band effort, never really making all of the parts or even arranging the song. Or Usually I write a lot of the parts in that practice or practices with which we uh, bring the demo to. So then it goes from there to being recorded several times and maybe changed and altered a little bit before it goes on the record. I'm, and the biggest thing is just getting the feel to it, you know, because you can have all the parts there, but it takes all three of us to sort of get in there and uh, get the feel on it, which is something we've always had as a band. And that's why I love this band. It's just the chemistry of the band. When we get together in a room, it sort of creates a, an extra little bit of magic that you can sort of paint onto whatever ideas there are. <laughs> So that was a pretty good excerpt from our recent interview with the Dirty Streets. Um, We'll also be featuring them in our upcoming issue, too. So if you want to learn more about the band, uh, do check out the August uh, September print issue. Head to the website and the YouTube channel, like I mentioned earlier, performermag.com and performermag on YouTube uh, to give the band a listen and to check out their most recent videos um, that they worked with us on for the Elixir Strings Artist of the Month project. Um, so up next is an interview with guitar Gabby, who I mentioned earlier is a really great shredder from down in the Atlanta area. Um, she talks to us about all sorts of different things, uh, including her law degree, 
uh, and kind of what's going on with her and the world right now. So give that a listen and we'll check back in when uh, we're all done. <laughs> so maybe we can take a step back and, and get to know kind of where where Guitar Gabby came from. Um, if you wouldn't mind giving our audience a little bit of background on maybe how you grew up and how you came to music and then we can sort of take the conversation from there if that if that works for you. Yeah. Cool. So um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, well, between Atlanta and Washington, D.C. My mom uh, is from D.C. She moved down here to go to Spelman College, which I would later attend. Okay. Um, and then my dad is from Atlanta, and he um, did over 35 years in law enforcement here, um, as did my grandfather, with the city of Atlanta and DeKalb County Police. So I grew up um, in a, in a family of very educated people, not just, um, in the arts and in education, but also with the law and law enforcement and legal things. So I grew up, um, being, uh, disciplined and, and learning my levels of discipline and, um, learning how to apply that in all different arenas. And, um, when I started playing music, I was about 13 years old. Uh, I Well, I was playing music before then. I, my mom started me piano mm-hmm. and a couple of other instruments. I played the clarinet. Um, but guitar is really what uh, spoke to me. And my mom bought me my first guitar when I was 13. And I taught myself how to play. And That's a good mom. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and shortly after that, it turned into... Um, I guess I would say I took my first real steps into the music industry by the time I got to my first year of college, which was in 2010. And um, I started my own band. It was called Bye Bye Love. And I named it after a group, The Cars. They had a song called Bye Bye Love. Mm-hmm. And um, I just I started learning the industry from there. Uh, but, but growing up, prior to that, like I said, my dad and mom were very... Um, very keen on making sure that we were, my sisters and I were educated and understood what it is that we wanted to get into and understood the industry, the business behind that. So my dad had me read a lot of copyright um, things and and learn how to copyright my music from a very young age. Um, And then eventually went to Spelman College, um, got a lot of um, knowledge behind uh, the law, not just with um, environmental science, which is one of my degrees in areas um, of law and, and background, but also music. Um, and I learned a lot of that just from trial and error and being so heavily involved in the industry from a young age. Um, and then shortly after that, I went to Vermont Law School, graduated in 2018. And yeah, I'm, I'm where I am now, but I, I started the Tulip Span in 2016. So was the goal um, yeah. of, of going to law school um, for you to practice law or was it for you to have a better foothold on, on managing you know, the career of the artists that you, you work with and, and working in the industry in general or both? A little bit of both. I think um, I'll start kind of answering that by saying that a lot of people look at law and lawyers in this one dimensional type of frame from what you see on SVU, for example, and I'm obsessed with SVU, but I think a lot of people look at law and say that if you are a lawyer, then that means that you're a practicing attorney in the courtroom every day arguing with people, but that's not, that's not all that, that law is, and my passion, um, which is what fueled me to go to law school outside of my mom saying, you know, hey, you should check out this program, um, was to educate people because I realized from my own experience that a lot of people, a lot of musicians and artists were not aware of things like copyright, trademark, or any level of intellectual property, any arena, I mean, um, 
and then even with that just knowing how to apply that to yourselves and I think a lot of um, a, a couple of areas where a lot of musicians and artists um, struggle is understanding the business behind the art that they have, the talent that they have. And I just I knew that it wasn't enough to be talented in the industry. You have to understand the business if you want it longevity. And once I started exploring that, I realized you know that's that really is the key to longevity and success in the industry. Understanding the business behind it uh, and being involved in it in any capacity. So. My, my passion for going to law school was to be able to learn how to apply that and teach other people. So I do a lot of um, courses now where I teach people about self-management and, you know, simple things with regards to taxes and contracting. And, and I do that not just for adults, but for kids, because I can only imagine what I would have been like if I had learned about um, learned robust conversations of copyright law and how to protect my songs when I was you know, 13. Well, sure. I, I mean, I don't think we teach kids much of anything, even when it comes to simply right. doing your taxes. I mean, yeah. who is prepared at 18 when they go out into the world to, to do taxes? I mean, hardly right. anybody, <laughs> even, right. especially musicians who are earning income from various states, possibly various countries and, and, and having to um, and having to deal with income streams from all different sorts of places and independent mm -hmm. contracts. And am I an employee? Am I not an employee? Yeah. So I, I think it's incredibly smart for artists to educate themselves, even if they don't take it to the level of actually going to law school, to at least right. maybe taking a course like the ones that, that you provide where they can educate themselves on, on topics that are incredibly relevant to their careers. Right, right, exactly. So let's, let's take it back. I want to know what 13-year-old Gabby, when she gets her first guitar, is, is playing. What's, what's the first thing you play? And, and what kind of guitar is it, if you don't mind? A, a really old Johnson Stratocaster model type guitar. It was a really crappy guitar, but <laughs> it was, um, I used to, there was this music store called Galaxy Music. Now they're called Ken Stanton, but it was called Galaxy Music back in the day. And I used to go there um, to get my clarinets and my reeds and whatnot, get all that kind of stuff yeah. from there. And there was a guitar tech who is still my tech to this day, like almost 15 years later, if not more. Uh, his name is Tommy Thompson. And I remember he played stupid sick guitar and I said I want to play like that one day so I just used to look at guitars and I would stand there and watch him fix guitars and people bring stuff in and he said well you know this is a good starter kit so he showed it to my mom and even after that I used to go into Guitar Center and um and Kensett Music and a whole bunch of music stores around Atlanta whatever was closest to me and just go in there and play around with different guitars until I figured out tone and what that meant and what I liked and how that compared to what I was teaching myself to play to, which was a lot of Nirvana. I'm the biggest Nirvana fan. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I listen to a lot of Nirvana and um, punk bands like Tat is one of my favorite punk bands, a, a London punk band. Um, but I used to just listen to, to a lot of random grunge and, and punk music and try to replicate what I was hearing. What, what was going on in Atlanta at that time? Because I know it has a pretty robust music scene now, and even then, we, we had an office down there for, for quite some time. Were there any local groups that you were into or any Atlanta music that, that influenced you kind of early on in your career? Not when I was, um, not when I first started playing. I was in a marching band um, when I first started playing, and then the, the um, uh, a small band in my middle school that used to do a lot of stuff with the orchestra. But when I got to college, there were a couple of smaller bands that I was in. Um, they changed their name over the years, so I really don't, I think, what was the name of it? Oh, the first band that I was in was called Tragedy Called Truth. 
And that band, actually, the leader of that band is a good friend of mine. His name is Vaughn Phoenix. But he um, he's part of many people like myself that are uh, people of color in the Atlanta scene that are changing the way that people see the Atlanta music scene and mm-hmm. making it so that rock music and Afro-punk music is brought to the forefront. He started a movement called Punk Black. And um, we played a lot of Punk Blacks over the years, but... I say all that to say that the scene in Atlanta is very much hip-hop and rap. It's always been like that. Um, But now what I'm starting to see is a lot of punk music and and rock bands that are coming to the forefront. Because it used to be very, very, very underground. And you only knew somebody if you knew somebody. But that's changing. Well, that, that's good. I, I think there is kind of that stereotype even outside of the area still that Atlanta is pretty much primarily just hip-hop. And mm-hmm. as someone who's published a magazine about independent music, I know that's not true. You know that's not true. And I think that's getting out there, which is good. That, you know, there is much more to it than that. Yeah, definitely. So, so let's get back to guitar. Um, did you take, like, a traditional lessons or were you more of a self-taught guitarist? I was mostly self-taught for my first three years, and then when I got to the fourth year, I started um, training classically with the teacher that used to work at my church at the time, Um, and so I studied classical music with him for about two or three years, and that's really where the world of music theory started to make sense to me, because I, I tried to, the way that my mind operates with anything is that if I can understand the why behind the what, then it's easier for me to apply how I do it, Yeah, and so... For me, what that translates to with guitar is understanding what guitars were, what they were made out of, the parts of the guitar, which is why I used to hang out with Tommy at music stores and watch him take them apart and put them back together. And then getting into music theory, I kind of was trying to teach myself some of it when I first started playing to understand why certain notes were, were where they were on the fretboard and how that all came together to make chords, but... It wasn't until I started studying classical music and playing classical guitar that I realized that music, and, and guitar in particular, is such a beautiful instrument, not because of how it sounds, but because of how the theory behind it is just, it, there is, there's so much variety, no matter what style you play. And I find music to be very fascinating because you're able to pull different styles and different sounds all together and create millions of different types of styles and genres so i just i find so much beauty in that and that's really what i got out of studying classical guitar so i play i play a little bit of classical guitar as well i haven't played it in a couple years but (laughs) were you writing at that time or did that come later the songwriting aspect of what you do i was always writing music but um and i I think that's why my parents got me into piano because they thought maybe piano would help me to be able to, to play the music that I was hearing in my head because I, w- I would write lyrics and start singing you know little melodies here and there but I wasn't able to figure out how to put the music with that because I hadn't started playing anything yet so they put me in piano and clarinet but the issue with clarinet is as beautiful of a woodwind instrument that it is you can't sing and play at the same yeah, time it's a little difficult so, <laughs> so yeah guitar really helped me to, to bring together bring bring my writing and songwriting um uh, aspect, I guess, of my life full circle when I was able to put the music with, with the lyrics. Cool. And, and fast forward to today and you've got you've got the band together and you said that started in around 2016, is that right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about the Tulips and 
for those who maybe aren't familiar, what kind of stuff you play, what you're up to now. I know the world is probably a different place than it was when you started, but we're assuming, you know, the world maybe goes back to some form of normal again soon. Where do you see the group going uh, moving forward? Um, so I started it in 2016. I used to, um, it, it started with me playing for uh, Diamond, um, who was a rapper from the uh, local Atlanta group called Crime Mob. Mm-hmm. And I started playing for her, did a couple of music videos. And when I started, when I did like one or two music videos with her, I realized seeing her on a TV show that she needed a, a backing band in Atlanta because she had one in L.A. And so I started the band and managed the band for Diamond because I quickly realized that people who are not musicians don't know how to manage musicians yeah. all the time. And, and if you do, it's a very special skill set. Everybody doesn't have it. And I noticed that her management thought that they knew how to manage a band. But, you know, simple things like, are we going to be playing with the DJ? We need to rehearse with the DJ <laughs> if we're going to be playing with one. That, that kind of stuff didn't really click with them. but So I started my management journey there um, and then simultaneously started the Tulips. And um, we were really busy, like almost every night of the week, either in rehearsals or doing shows just to get um, just to get the name out there. And then, um, but the reason why I started it outside of just Diamond needing a band was because I realized from my own experience that there are there's a very large gap in the music industry that needs to be filled by black women's voices and our images being involved in um, marketing, um, being on panels, being on the business side, the legal side. We're just, we're not as present as I believe we should be. And so I wanted to create a platform for black women to be able to participate in music whenever they wanted, however they wanted. So the band is a collective. There's no set for people. Um, and I subcontract musicians from around the world to play with me whenever I tour. Um, so I have musicians in Canada, London, um, all throughout the Southeast region, the West Coast, the Midwest. So there are musicians everywhere. And the, the joy of it is they each bring a different style to the table. They each bring a different background to the table. And when we get on stage together, hearing how they express the music that I've written, like how they play certain notes, um, is really a beautiful thing. Um, so does that answer the question? Absolutely. No, I, I, and I, and I wanted you to touch upon the, the collective nature of it. What I think is interesting is even if you're working with, with different musicians, um, accompanying you or performing with you, you still retain your own style. And I think what's unique about your playing style is, for people who haven't heard it, and hopefully we'll drop in some clips here that they can listen to, there's a, there's an aggressive nature to the music just by way of the genre that you perform in, but there's a really great melodic aspect of your personal performance, especially when you take the lead. And I was hoping maybe you could touch upon that aspect of your playing and where that came from, maybe some of your influences who kind of helped shape your, your personal style of guitar playing. Um... Some of my, outside of Nirvana, um, some of <laughs> outside my, of Nirvana, right? Some of my biggest influences I didn't really learn about until I got to college and, and learned about the history of, of black people um, creating rock and roll and many other genres. But Sister Rosetta Thorpe is one of my biggest influences, yeah, not amazing. just because of her style of playing, but because of the courage that I can relate to as a black woman. We're, we're usually at the bottom of the totem pole in a lot of different industries damn near everyone that I say but especially in music and I what I have experienced and I can only imagine what it was like for her in the early 1900s is that when you walk into a room 
you're either you're placed in one of very few limiting categories and as a black woman I know that I'm very versatile as being with other black women in my band I know that we're all very versatile so I knew that it had to have been hard and it must have taken a lot of courage for her to walk in with as much confidence as I see in her videos like I can watch the same video over and over again and it's just it empowers me so she's one of my biggest influences for those reasons plus her playing um and then an- another person that's really uh, influential to me is Steve Vai. I really love how he takes notes and bends them and just creates this weird sound that really just belongs to, to him. Yeah. You can't really hear anybody else doing it exactly the way that he does it. So I really love Steve Vai. I love Joe Satriani. I love Jimi Hendrix. Um, and I also love Orianti. She's another one of my favorite guitarists. She really got me into playing uh, the world of PRS guitars. Um so, yeah, those are some of my biggest influences, though. I, I didn't read also. It definitely makes sense, especially the Steve Vai connection, because he has, even when he's playing fast, he still has okay. this sense of melodic playing that doesn't distract you from kind of the technical wizardry that, that he's pulling off. There's still a sense mm-hmm. of musicality there. And I hear that in your music, and I think that can get lost sometimes when people are just trying to be flashy and show off you know, their technical abilities. And and certainly he and you both have those technical abilities, but there's still that that human connection to the music that I feel. Right, right. Um, you brought up the, the PRS connection with Orianti, and I also know that you play uh, a number of really cool uh, LTD and ESP guitars. Are, are you officially an LTD endorser, or how does that work? Is that just your preferred guitar of the moment? Yeah, no, I'm officially endorsed with ESP. I've been with them for about three and a half years or so, something like that. Cool. And how's that relationship work for you? It's great. They're really good people. Um, And it kind of ties into a little bit of what I was saying earlier with regards to black women being represented, not just like in in music on a performance level, but something that I've been working with them on, and hopefully we'll be able to unveil the fruits of this labor soon, but I've been working with them on their diversity and inclusion from a marketing perspective because I don't see black people on their marketing as much but that's the conversation that we've been having and they're very they're they're good people and um i wouldn't want to be endorsed with anybody else (laughs) (laughs) and uh you definitely wear the uh, neon green guitar loud and proud (laughs) thank you Um, I know I, uh, we're a little bit limited on time here. So, um, if you, if you want to kind of talk about what's going on in the world, what we've been doing with artists is just kind of checking in and, and asking, you know, A, are you okay? <laughs> uh, and, and B, what do you think we're, what we're going to do in this country? How are we, how are we going to move forward? don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't expect you to have the answers uh it'd be great if you did because then we could make right. national news but um right. <laughs> you know from an artistic standpoint you know um where, where do you see uh where do you see yourself headed if the world does open up again as far as touring is concerned um is that something you'd be comfortable with doing again in the near future um any any thoughts on kind of where we stand right now Honestly, I was I was on a panel um, yesterday evening, and this was part of a conversation that we were having, which is the return of live music, if at all. What is that going to look like? Yeah. And so, one of the things that I was saying was, as a as a 
as a businesswoman and also as an artist, I don't necessarily feel comfortable entrusting my health and my band's health to a venue who hasn't taken necessary precautions to like test people or to keep people, you know, socially distanced. And plus, I mean, it's it's really difficult to control humans to keep them socially distanced, especially when half of the people in this country think that this is a hoax. But um, I think that um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I think that we will get back to some sort of normal. I don't think we're ever going to get back to the normal that we all knew. And if we do, it's going to take some years and some dedication with um, with representatives in office to, to show some leadership and pull that together. But I think as it relates to, to music for me, I see myself and my band doing what we're doing now, which is kind of existing in a virtual capacity mm. um, and just being available for people from an educational aspect and also from a performance aspect. And I see a lot of artists starting to adopt this um, virtual performance piece into their their brands and kind of fully grabbing onto that whereas i think when this thing first started a lot of us thought okay well you know i could just do a couple of instagram lives and we'll be back out into playing shows in august yeah but it's august now and we're not going and it's not happening so maybe the mindset has to shift all right how can i how can i do this live stream thing right Uh, does that make sense for my band um um I, I think that's maybe a positive and more realistic attitude to have. Uh, we've gotten answers all over the place from bands who are ready to go back on the road. And, and God bless them, I don't know how they are. Um, from bands who are like, you know what? This is probably it for me. I'm going to be a recording artist now, and I'm fine with that. Um, but there's probably middle ground, and I think you're taking a sensible approach where your health is is paramount to your well-being. Uh, and obviously, you're not going to do anything to jeopardize yourself or your band. So that... That makes total sense, and and I think we're all kind of in the same boat where we just don't know. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was our interview with Guitar Gabby. Uh, For more, check out the upcoming print issue where we uh, do a little bit more in-depth with her on the Q&A front, and uh, you'll get to see some really cool pictures of her from a recent photo shoot which is awesome. Uh, I was hoping she'd have the answer to fix <laughs> to fix the country, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think any of us do right now. So that uh, that's, you know, where we're at anyway. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. Give Gabby a listen. Um, more information will be at performermag.com when the article comes out. All sorts of links to her social media, her YouTube, her website. Um, so you can go give her uh, a good solid listen and, uh, and check out all of her stuff. So uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Um, I hate I hate to use cliches like, you know, in these troubled times or in the world we live in. But, um, you know, I've seen a lot of artists pivot and, and do some new, interesting, creative things uh, during these times. Um, a lot of artists are taking it easy. You know, they're not finding that creative inspiration. We talked about that in episode one, and that's cool. But um, it, it kind of brings me back to uh, a story that I sort of rediscovered recently. Um, I, I watched uh, Stacy Peralta's uh, documentary on the Bones Brigade uh, fairly recently, I think on Netflix. If you, if you haven't seen it, Stacy Peralta was a pro skateboarder in the 70s, and he put together this team for um, Powell Peralta, which was a skateboard company he co-founded in the late 70s after his career sort of ended. Um, 
Bones Brigade was a collaboration of a lot of great pro skaters in the early 80s and through the late 80s before Stacey Peralta left the company. But during this um, documentary film that he made, because he became a filmmaker later on in life, uh, he, he tells the story of Rodney Mullen, who hands down is probably one of my favorite athletes of all time uh, i'm not sure what to call rodney uh, if you know anything about rodney you might not be sure what to call him either but essentially in the early 80s rodney mullen invented basically every trick you could do on a skateboard he was top of his game he won every competition i think that he entered except one maybe you know 36 37 competitions in a row and, and it got to a certain point where his style of skating uh became sort of passe it was out of fashion it was out of date um he was a freestyle skater which meant a lot of flat ground uh doing what people called circus tricks you know lots of flips and and, and board movements with his feet that are phenomenal and, and revolutionized the way that people approached uh skateboarding but in the mid 80s uh street skating came along and, and really took over even obliterated vert skating which is you know where tony hawk and Mike McGill and, and Steve Caballero came from. So street skating comes in. Rodney's discipline becomes sort of passe. It's 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 over. Um, and, and what does he do? Does he give up? No. He basically reinvents street skating. Uh, modern street skating that you see today uh, is a byproduct of guys like Nadas Coppice and, and Mark Gonzalez, of course, and Tommy Guerrero. Um, but also Rodney Mullen, uh, he, he, he took the sport in new directions, first in freestyle, freestyle dies, but he doesn't give up when his world is rocked. Um, and, and I find the parallels between what's going on now in the music industry uh, fairly striking. You know, a lot of artists are finding that their careers uh, are being sidetracked and changing and what it means to be a musician is is changing and, and people are are pivoting um doing new things doing the live stream thing doing uh concerts from empty venues and, and seeing how that works just trying new things and i think the lessons that can be learned from someone like rodney who out of necessity because his you know way of doing things had changed uh out of necessity he he changed and he changed the industry people are doing the same thing in music that's that's the point i was trying to get to so uh if you haven't seen the bones brigade uh documentary definitely check that out because i think there's a lot of parallels in in that industry with the ups and downs um that they saw and in, in, in things going in cycles the way that we're seeing things go in cycles now with the live industry and how that's changing and evolving so anyway that's my long-winded recommendation uh, for this episode, stay tuned for episode three coming soon. And uh, big thanks again to our premier podcast sponsor, uh, Elixir Strings. Check out elixirstrings.com. Check out performermag.com and give a listen to this month's interviewees, uh, The Dirty Streets and Guitar Gabby. See you next time. Bye.